The following sermon is from Four Mile Creek Baptist Church in Moss Point, Mississippi. It is our prayer that you encounter Jesus during this message and that you be transformed by His truth. To learn more about Four Mile Creek, visit us online at fourmilecreek.org. We continue our series today called Past the Vapor. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn with me first to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're told in James chapter 4 uh, these words, and it's not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to look at it, but I want us to uh, make sure that we ground ourselves in this series with the initial text that we began with. So in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, the Bible tells us this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. Here it is, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know the good, and yet not do it. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for your inspired word. We thank you, God, that your word is trustworthy because you are trustworthy. Father, I pray you'd speak to us today as we examine the life of Joshua and how he lived with eternity in mind, how he made his life count for your glory and for your kingdom. God, we love you, and we thank you. We pray that you would speak to us in this time. In the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. So Joshua, Dolly Parton wrote about him. I'm a Dolly Parton fan, if you didn't notice. I've mentioned her a few times. And uh, really like Dolly Parton. Like Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and everybody else. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 34, I want us to pick up where we last left off in this series, and that was with the life of Moses. Because we cannot understand the life of Joshua without understanding the life of Moses. Moses was the leader of Israel for all those wilderness years. He was the leader. And now he's died. He's dead. He woke up dead. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, beginning in verse 5, here's what the Bible says. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the Lord's word. He buried him, that is, God buried him, in the valley of the land of Moab facing Beth Peorah, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, his vitality had not left him, and the Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for thirty days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Only man in the Bible with no parents. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Here's this great and mighty man who knew God face to face. I mean, he, he, he did not know about God. He knew God. There, by the way, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. He knew God personally. He knew God intimately. He, he had a, a close and abiding relationship with Holy God. And he dies. And at his death, this young man named Joshua comes to power. Now, Joshua was not in Egypt. Joshua had come after. Now that I said that, I'm second-guessing myself. So all you Bible students, you go and you double-check me. If I'm wrong, you let me know either at the end of the sermon or next week. But Joshua is a young man. The only leader he's known is Moses. And by the way, let, let me just tell you this, just side note. I don't know everything. And I'm still a student of the Word, just like you all. And so I can stand up, I can say something, I can get it wrong. If you're, on, if you're in our Wednesday night adult Bible study, one of the things uh, that is unique about that, and if you're in it, you know this, is that sometimes I'll just speak out loud and I'll say, you know, th this is one idea about this thing, and this is another thing. And I'll tell you if I'm wrestling with where I'm at on that particular subject or not. And so we're all students of the Word, and it's okay. All right, 
But seriously, though, if I'm wrong, let me know because I'm going to go and research this after the sermon because I'm second-guessing myself. But here's this man, Joshua. He comes to leadership. And those are pretty big shoes to fill. This is Moses we're talking about. He was a member of Pharaoh's household. He went and he prophesied to Pharaoh. He said, hey, let God's people go or these things will happen. And then guess what happened? All those prophecies came to pass. He then leads the people out. And my goodness, if he is not the definition of what it means to be a leader, he is a man who's bold before God and he's bold before men, but he's also a man who knows his limitations. Because time and time again, after the Israelites, I like to call it in their stupidity because I identify with that. My capacity for stupidity is mind-blowing. By the way, yours is too. And oftentimes they would face an obstacle. And the Israelites, first thing they would do, have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? So what would Moses do? He and Aaron, they would often fall on their face before the Lord and begin to speak to the Lord about the issues going on. And then after speaking to the Lord, they get up and they say, well, here's what the Lord said to do. And now Moses is dead. It isn't Moses' responsibility anymore to do that. It's Joshua's. So by the way, just to paint the picture for you, look in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. And stop using this so superficially in your life. Verse 6, chapter 1, be strong and courageous. It's actually verse 8. Um, actually, I'm sorry. It's verse 9. But be strong and courageous. By the way, be strong and courageous is repeated multiple times in the first nine verses. But it's verse 9. It's a coffee cup verse. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did Joshua not have reason to hear that? Moses is dead. The leader he knew is dead. It has befallen him to lead these people. And now they have to take the land. And the land is occupied. This is not going into an unoccupied land and staking some flags down and saying, this is my plot of land. This is, i got to go in with a sword, drive out the people who are there, and then get my land. Also, he's got a bunch of obstinate people behind him. And so he's, he's told, be strong and courageous. It's because the challenge before him was greater than he was. And the reason I say stop misquoting this and taking this out of context and using it specifically, superficially, is because, look, I, I get it. That job interview might be daunting, but it's not the end of the world if you don't get the job. If you're in need of a job and nobody wants to hire you, show up somewhere and start working for free. I've done that before. I needed a job, and by golly, I was not. There's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. But I started in Sonic, and I was going to continue in Sonic. And I'd taken a little bit of time. I'd left for a year. I went and I did some internships overseas, that were, uh, mission internships. I came back, and I said, I'm not going to learn a new job. I'm going to work at Sonic. I know these people. But they had a new manager. He didn't know me from Adam. And I walked in for an interview. He said, I can't see you right now. I said, that's fine. I'll wait. And I'm standing around. And you know what I did? I started working for free. He was going to give me a job eventually. And <laughs> he did. Start working for free. You'll get a job. I promise. But, but, but he's told, be strong and courageous because the task before him is greater than he is. And yes, by all means, you might be deathly afraid of that interview. And you might need God and the Holy Spirit to remind you that, he go, that God goes before you and He goes with you. But this verse is so much more than a job interview. It is so much more than a job interview. It is so much more than the big championship game. It is so much more than making uh, your monthly sales quota or, or anything else. It is so much more than that. So when you think about it, when you, when you quote it, use it in context. So Joshua lives 110 years. He sees God provide. He sees victories and defeat. He saw people of great faith and people of no faith. He was a man who lived past the vapor. At the end of his life, they don't clamor to make him king. They don't clamor to, to continue in the way that Joshua had led. 
Because Joshua led in such a way that he kept saying, obey your God. Obey the commands God has given Moses. There's something to be said for that. So today as we look at Joshua, I want you to uh, think about how Joshua lived with eternity in mind. Now we're going to be all over the place because Joshua's life covers so much. First thing is he lived courageously. Joshua lived courageously. He was not a man who was fearful. He was not a man who was unsure of himself. He was a man of courage. He was a man of action. Now in this, we need to define courage before we go any further in the midst of this. Now this is going to sound similar to President FDR. And FDR got it half right. First half is from FDR. Courage is not the absence of fear. He got that right. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather, I submit to you, it is the calm assurance that God's got this and I can obey. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the calm assurance that God's got this and I can obey. Because to be a man or a woman of courage in 2023 is going to cost you something. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe, but it's going to cost me something. So Joshua lived courageously. How did he live? Courageously. Well, if you'll flip back to Numbers. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. If you'll flip back to Numbers 14 and look in verses 1 through 10. If I can get there, I'll read it to you. And so they have come to the point of the promised land. Moses has sent in a group of spies. He sent 12 of them in, representing one for each tribe. They come back and they give a report. So here it is. And by the way, they've come back, they've given a report, and 10 of the 12 say, absolutely not. This is not a land we can take. But Joshua and his buddy Caleb say, we can take it. So here's what happens. They, Israelite, Israel has refused to enter the promised land, beginning in verse 14. One, the whole community broke in to loud cries. They realize that they're now here in the wilderness. They're too afraid. They won't take the land, so they break into loud cries. And the people wept that night. All the Israelites, here it is, complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them. Here it is. Have you ever said anything like this to God? Listen to him. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by sword? Our wives and our children will become plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Can I translate that for you? They're trying to lead a coup d'etat. They're trying to overthrow Moses and Aaron. They're trying to overthrow God's appointed leader for that season. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, who were among those who scouted the land, tore their clothes, and they said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. You may want to underline that. It is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You go back and read chapter 13, you're going to read the things they found. It was really good things. But it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and He will give it to us. Verse 9, Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people or the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. And while the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. God has brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery. He's brought them out. And by the way, Egypt is symbolic in the midst of all of this of sin and separation from God. 
And He's brought them out of that sin and out of that darkness. And He's told them, here is the promised land. Enter it. Take possession of it. Embrace it. Coincidentally, Christian, God has brought you out of Egypt as well. Stop trying to go back there. Stop saying, and Lord, forgive me because I'm guilty of this. Stop saying, Lord, you have plotted my destruction. You have, you have asked more of me than I can give. No, he hasn't. He is asking you to let go of the very thing that will harm you so that you can take care of the very, so, so that you can take hold of the very promise he's made to you. But you cannot take possession of God's promise if you're holding on to sin and death. And so we're called to go ever further into the promised land. We're called to, 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 to possess to an even, even greater degree that which God has promised for us. But at the hint of one opposition, we say, oh Lord, this couldn't ever be your will. Can I just tell you something? God never promised that it would be easy. God does not call us to the easiest in the words of Dr. Strong, but He does call us to the best. And here's the other reality of this truth. That God never requires of us something that is burdensome. Because the commands of the Lord, John tells us, 1 John 5, 3, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. It is not burdensome. It may feel burdensome, but in the grand scheme of things, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. Joshua was courageous to say, we can take the land. He says, the land we passed through and explored is extremely good land. It is exceptionally good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, and He was, He will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. It was their rebellion that kept them from the promise. It was their rebellion that kept them from the promise. Part of the, the idea that we're exploring in this series is what does it mean to live an abundant life? You cannot live an abundant life in Christ if you are consistently choosing rebellion over obedience. You cannot do it. So if you're saying, Lord, I'm not living an abundant life, can I just ask you, are you obeying God in what He's called you to do? Start there. Start there. But it's so painful what He's called me to do. God will give you the grace you need because His grace is sufficient for you for His power is perfected in weakness. So obey. So He says, we can take the land. And then He becomes the leader. Back over to Joshua chapter 1. He becomes a leader. And then you know what he says when he becomes leader? Not, we're, we can take the land. He says, we will take the land. Listen to what he says. Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get provisions ready for yourself before within three days you will be crossing. We, we may cross depending on the weather. We may cross if we feel like it. We may cross if we all get together and we take a vote and we have a majority rule and it's two-thirds. No, he says, in three days' time, you will cross the Jordan and you will go and take possession of the land the Lord is giving you to inherit. Go on over into chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning. Joshua chapter 6, verse 12. And the priests took the ark of the Lord and they're going to battle Jericho. 
Remember Jericho? You're about to know about Jericho if you don't. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took the ark of the Lord and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets marched in front of the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of them and the rear guard went behind the ark of the Lord. And on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Verse 15, early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and they marched around the city seven times in the same way that they had done the previous six days. After the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets and Joshua said to the troops, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, but the city and everything in it are set apart for the Lord, uh, to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her and her house will live because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep, but keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take away any of those things, you will be set apart for the camp of Israel of destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. Verse 20. So the troops shouted. And the trumpet sounded. And when they heard the blast of the trumpet, the troops gave a great shout and the wall collapsed and the troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. Then com they completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. He becomes leader. He says not we can take the land. He says we are going to take the land. By sword or by just marching around and saying, shout when we blow the trumpet. And by the way, even in this, it wasn't them who did the fighting, it was God who did the fighting. Makes a lot more sense when you read Exodus 14. God will fight for you. Moses tells the Israelites, you only need to be still. It's God's battle. But Joseph, Joshua, Joshua lived courageously. He said, we can take the land. Yeah, there's going to be opposition. Yeah, there's going to be fighting. We can take the land. He becomes leader. He says, we will take the land. We are taking the land. Get ready. Get up. Go. By the way, by the way, stop living like God's just going to magically do something for you. God, is within His sovereignty and within His uh, omniscience and providential care, He has every right to miraculously provide by all means. But you cannot pray for a well and expect God to miraculously make one appear when you're praying while leaning on a shovel. God, I want to get better. I'm sick with this disease. Lord, make me better. Just miraculously do it. Why do you think God gave us doctors? Oh, well, that's just no faith. Well, take your glasses off and try to get out this building. It's not a lack of faith to use the tools God's given. But He requires action on our part, and action as God has led, and as God requires, requires courage. This was not something they were just going to walk in and say, okay guys, God's promised this land, uh, pack your bags, get out. These people have homes there. They have farms there. They, they have kids. They, they've, they've built their lives here. They're not going without a fight. If I show up at your house and say, all right, uh, Viva and Bill, pack your bags. It's my house now. You're going to look at me like I'm three fresh short of a Happy Meal. It requires courage to be obedient. Discipleship requires a sacrifice on your part. It requires that you lay your life down. First John five three. For this is the love, for this is what love for God is to keep His commands, and His commands are not a burden. If you're going to obey God, you got to keep His commands. Ephesians six nineteen to twenty. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, "Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak it as I should." The Lord, make me courageous to speak your gospel. I shared the gospel on Friday with a lady in Biloxi. She looked at me like a cow looks at a new gate. Well, what in the world is this? I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm kind of interested because I don't have anything better to do. Be bold. 
Be courageous. Pray for that. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am chains, so that I may make it known as I should, so that I may be courageous in my proclamation. By the way, I've been reminded of this these past few weeks in, in, in pastoral ministry that pastoral ministry requires a level of courage to say, I'm going to do the right thing even if it costs me status, if it costs me people who want to talk to me, I'm going to be obedient to God before I'm obedient to any of you. I love you. But pastoral ministry, obedience to God, even if you're not a pastor disciple, guess what? To be obedient requires boldness. I was in Books a Million yesterday, Kayla and I wore. I've got a, a, a goal before I die. It's going to take me that long to do it. But one of my goals in life is to read an autobiography or a biography of every U.S. president. So anytime I go into a bookstore, and I'll hardly ever buy books from a bookstore because they're, they're overpriced. You can get them cheaper on Amazon. And so I'll, I'll go in and I'll start looking at the biographies. And I'll try to find one that seems to be balanced on the person I want to read or the thing I want to read about. And if I can find something cheaper online, I'll buy it because I'm going to keep that book because I'm going to reference it again. And I was amazed yesterday in Books A Million how much of the Books A Million location in Biloxi is filled with things of the occult, of the science fiction, of the horror, their biography section was not very big. It's going to take courage to live as a Christian in a world that denies any spiritual truth except the spiritual truth of darkness. It's the oddest thing. Which, by the way, that's why I'm looking forward to Halloween because one of the things I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be sitting out in my driveway passing out candy, getting to know the neighbors trying to be light in the darkness. People are going to celebrate Halloween regardless. I'm going to be there as, hey, I'm here. Nice to meet you. Let me try to build a relationship with you. You're my neighbor. And let me try to invest in you and tell you the gospel. It takes courage to do that. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. But be a person of courage. Joshua was a person of courage. Men, it takes courage to fulfill your God-given role in the home, church, and society. Women, likewise to you. It takes courage to stand firm on God's truth. And guess what? It will become increasingly more difficult to do that. It will not get easier. It will get more difficult. It will become increasingly uh, difficult for us to do that. Here's the other thing. though: Not only did he live courageously, he lived convictionally. Convictionally is not a word that is recognized in the English language, so I'm going to explain it to you. Convictionally means you're a man of conviction. That your life is one characterized by consistent conviction in the truth. Now if you Google what conviction is, you're going to hear this. Oxford defines it something along this lines. It is a firmly held belief or opinion. It is a firmly held belief or opinion. The problem with that is there are a lot of people who have an opinion and they're convinced of it and they are wrong. And I wish those people could be as right as they are confident about their opinion. Then you have people who say they have a belief and it's not an opinion. The problem with their belief is it's not rooted to anything. There are people who say there is no absolute truth. Age of postmodernism. In fact, we're post postmodernism now. There, there, there is no absolute truth, really. Well, if I jump off of a bridge, I guarantee you that I'm going to go down. And it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop. There is absolute truth. So, so what is conviction then? Well, true conviction. True conviction is a belief rooted in God's truth that motivates us to right action. 
True conviction is a belief rooted in God's truth that motivates us to right action. What good is a conviction if it doesn't motivate you to right action? Yeah, I'm convictional about that, really, because your, your life says otherwise. I'm convictional that church attendance is important. Really? Why are you never here? Or why are you only here when it's convenient for you? Be a man of integrity. Be a woman of integrity. If it's not important to you, don't go around like a peacock saying it is. If it isn't, say what you mean. Mean what you say. Joshua lived convictionally. When Israel took Jericho, Joshua gave clear instructions to his people. Don't take anything. All this stuff is for the Lord. Joshua 6, 18-19. Don't take anything. It's for the Lord. It is set apart to the Lord for His destruction. But there's a man, there's a man who was convictional, but he wasn't convictional about the right things. Chapter 7, verse 1, the Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. And Achan, from the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. So Israel did not do what they were commanded, but the story goes on. There's consequences for sin. Listen to verses 2 to 5. Joshua sent the man from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. And so the men went and scouted Ai, and after returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all the people there. So about 300, I'm sorry, about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them out and chased them from outside the city gates to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Now, if you're a numbers person, I did some math. I had Google double check it. They lost 1.2% of their force. They haven't experienced this before. This is a big deal for them. They disobeyed. God's brought consequences. They then lament. Joshua's the new leader. He was clear. Don't take anything because all this is for the Lord's. And then all of a sudden they're defeated. He doesn't know what's going on. Listen to verses 6 through 9. Joshua tore his clothes. He fell face down uh, to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They, put all, they, they all put dust on their heads. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? Did you hear what Joshua said? Joshua's not only suffering the loss of 36 men, he's suffering a crisis of faith. And you think it's the end of the world when you suffer a crisis of faith? I'm not discounting your crisis of faith. I've had them. Anybody who's walked with Jesus for any length of time has had them. What I'm telling you, though, is that it's not the end of the world because you have a crisis of faith. If you will let God grow you up through it, He'll do that. He'll make you stronger. So Joshua says, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? And the Canaanites and all those who live in the land will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? By the way, he has a little view of God in that. Well, God, what are you going to do? Well, God's God. He's got it. Joshua laments. He doesn't understand what's going on. Well, God speaks. Listen to verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Get up, man. Why are you crying? Well, what's the deal, Joshua? Get up. Israel has sinned. 
They have violated my covenant when I appointed, that I have appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen and deceived, and they've put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs, and they will run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you, here it is, unless you remove from you that which is set apart. God's convicted. God said, here it is. And so it, Joshua gets up and he says, okay, time to take care of business. And so he does. And Achan is eventually found to be the one who sinned. By the way, anytime somebody preaches Joshua 7, they always quote from Deuteronomy, I believe, be sure that your sin will find you out. Part of, this, part, part of your sin finding you out is that there may be a public acknowledgement of this. I think, and I reserve the right to be wrong on this point, that it might just be you become aware that you've sinned. And you say, oh Lord, atone for me, the sinner. I'm reading Leviticus right now. And by the way, I'm loving it. How many of you have ever read Leviticus and just said, oh God, I'm loving Leviticus. I'm loving Leviticus. I mean that. When you read, go home and read it. Keep this in mind. God has graciously provided a way for sinful people to live in His presence. It'll change how you read it. And one of the things you read in Leviticus is that somebody can come in contact with something unclean and be unaware of it, but when he or she is made aware, it's time for atonement. When their sin, when their uncleanness has found them out, it's time for atonement. I'm going to stop pontificating on that. But you need to know this. Be sure your sin will find you out. If you're sinning, stop, confess it, repent of it. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Thank Him for it and move on and don't sin. Go and sin no more. Israel is then purified. Achan is taken and he's stoned. He's doing some study on this. What about his wife and kids? Maybe, maybe not. Scholars are debating this. But Israel is purified. Verse 24 of chapter 7, Joshua and all Israel uh, with him took Achan, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his ox, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and he brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over them a large pile of rocks that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from His burning anger, and therefore that place is called the Valley of Acre, and it's still, it's still today. Joshua lived convictionally, so did Achan. Achan was convictional that God was wrong about reserving things for himself. He was convictional that God's holiness wasn't important and that he himself did not have to be holy. He was convictional that he could do what he wants. I think it's a rite of passage for teenagers. I'm grown. I can do what I want. Want a bet? Joshua, though, is convictional. What's he convictional about? God is entitled to everything. He's the conqueror. Not, not us, he is. He is entitled to the plunder. He's entitled to whatever he wants to be entitled to. He is holy, and it's important that we be holy too. Joshua dealt with sin in the camp. Though it cost the destruction of a head of a family, their belongings, and potentially, depending on where you're at in this discussion, his wife, his kids, and everything else he had. He was also convictional. Joshua was that we're to obey God in all things. Both men were convictional, but only one of them led to life. What are you convictional about? When nobody's around, when it's just you, and by the way, you and the Lord. What do you believe? 
What do you practice? What do your actions, when nobody's looking, say about you? I was in a store the other day. Lady rung me up. And the total came to something that was just far too low for what I bought. And I even asked her. She said, no, that's right. I don't think that's right, but okay. And so I swiped my card and I'm walking out the store. I said, I, I, that, that, there's no way that was right. I pulled that receipt out. She only run me up for one thing. And so I went back to another checkout counter. I said, this, this lady didn't ring me up right. By the way, had I just kept my mouth quiet, I could have saved 80 bucks. But God knew. And I knew. And the lady who rung me up for that other item said we would have never known. Can I tell you why I believe this is important that I come back and make sure this is right? Yeah. Told her about Jesus. He saved me. He redeemed me. He made me new. I want to live my life to reflect that. By the way, He can make you new. Let me tell you how. Live convictionally when nobody else is around. What do you believe? What do you practice? What do you think? What do you say? You can come in here. You, you can look like the bee's knees in here. But you know. You know what's in your heart. You know what you believe and don't believe. You know if you make a mockery of God. Joshua was convinced that God is faithful. Numbers 14, 6-9. That God is holy. Joshua 7, 11, and 16. And that God is serious. God is serious. Other people were serious too in the Bible. We're to be serious. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me of His prisoner, writes Paul to young Timothy. Instead, share in, the suffer share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which, is, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. And that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, right, wrote Paul, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul was convictional. I know whom I've believed. He was also convictional too over in uh, Philippians chapter 3. If you'll turn over there, I want you to read this. You should have underlined that 2 Timothy passage as well. But go eat popcorn in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul gives his pedigree. He gives his resume. It's a pretty impressive resume. It was a resume that everybody else wanted. He says this about his resume in verse 7 of chapter 3, Philippians. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All these things that, that I used to, to puff myself up with, all the education, all the lineage, all the power and prestige, all the social credit, I consider it a loss. I, I don't even want to think about those things. It's worthless to me. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and I consider them as dung. I consider them as rubbish. So that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says, I know who I believe. I know what has caused me to suffer the loss of all these things that I used to believe to be important but I consider it worthwhile for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is it that you're holding on to that's keeping you from fully going into that which God has promised? You've got to let go of something to take hold of the promise. If you come to God 
with your hands and your fists clenched tight, there's nothing, there's no room for him to put anything in. You have to let go. Oh, but it's so bitter for me to let that go, Pastor. The reward is far sweeter than the sacrifice is better. The reward is far sweeter than the sacrifice is bitter. Joshua lived convictionally. He also lived consistently. Now, if you're a grammar nerd, you're going to say, of course he lived consistently. He lived 110 years consistently. They were in consecutive order. But he lived consistently. His walk and his talk matched. His public, his private life matched. His head and his heart were connected together. What he believed intellectually, he believed in the very core of his being. God never says, trust me with all of your mind. What does he say? Trust me with all of your heart. And lean not onto your own what? Understanding. Trust in me with the very core of your being. Lean not onto your own intellect. Joshua lived consistently. Everything matched. Everything lined up. At the end of his life, the end of his life, Joshua 24. Turn there with me. In Joshua 24, some of you are thinking, praise the Lord, it's coming to an end. Buckle up. Comes to the end of his life. He's lived consistently. There's no call to make him king or a ruler or anything else. He's been Joshua. He's done his duty. He comes to the end of his life and he gives this, this farewell address. He, he gives this this, this grand speech in which he frames everything and he reminds Israel, remember your God. Remember what God's done. If the Lord uh, does not let me die here, there will come a day, Lord willing, that I tell ye, remember what God has done in our time together. And let's remember what he's called us to be about. Now here's the deal. He comes to the end of his life and he gives this grand speech. And he's framed everything and he said, this is what you need to know. And he says this in verse 14 of Joshua 24. And you know this. You might even have something from Hobby Lobby. It's in your kitchen. And it has this verse on it. I'm thinking of some family friends. who, Knowing them is probably still in their kitchen. I haven't been to their house in four or five years. Probably still in their kitchen. Verse 14, chapter 24, Joshua. Therefore, fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. Your worship of God needs to be sincere. Don't fake it. There have been times I've prayed for people, and I didn't mean it, and I told the Lord, Lord, I don't mean this. But I'm going to keep praying it until I mean it one day. I'm going to keep praying it until you make me mean it. So worship Him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship the Lord abandon idolatry abandon the past abandon all the sin that you used to be enslaved to that has no place in your life he says this but if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord then choose for yourselves this day which will you worship the gods your fathers chose and worship before the, beyond the Euphrates River or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living here it is but as for me and my household me and my family, says the CSB. We will worship the Lord. And so he gives them this choice. He says, remember who God is. Remember what He's done. He's brought you out of Egypt. He's given you this land. You're taking possession of it. Here it is. We've divided the land. It's yours. Now choose. Choose right now, in this moment, who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the gods that your fathers and your ancestors served? The, that the Egyptians still serve? Or are you going to serve the triune God? And what do they say? Verse 16 of Joshua 24, they say, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. Boy, such a proud proclamation. However, the story does not end. Flip over in your Bible, if you will, just a few pages to Judges chapter 2. After Joshua dies, they enter a period we call the Judges. 
Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 and 13, did not take them long to forget what they swore before the Lord because when they swore it in Joshua 24, they also renewed the covenant. And boy, oh boy, they forgot what they renewed. Verse 11, Judges chapter 2. The Israelites, actually, back up. Let's just get the whole picture here. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. By the way, that becomes important later in the story, Ephraim. North of Mount Gash, and the whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After, after them, another generation rose up, here it is, who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel. Can I tell you what that means? It means what we call the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that Moses commanded Israel to do that as you go teach your children who the Lord is teach your children what God is about and what we are to be about as His covenant people they had not done a whole generation comes up comes into leadership who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel and the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and they bowed down to them. They angered the Lord for they abandoned Him and worshipped Baal and the Asherites. Joseph, Joshua lived consistently. Parents, grandparents, disciple, your life must match your talk. Because it does not take long for those who come after you to not have any idea who the God you serve is. I was reading a journal article this week from the Journal of Youth Ministry. This is, you've been waiting all week for this. This is quite interesting. It doesn't present any new information. Rather, it just affirms what we know to be true in the Bible already. I was reading this article from spring 2020 about Taiwanese Christians and Christian families specifically and what parents did from their perception that was most influential in the faith development of their adolescent kids. And what those same adolescent kids believed was the most influential thing their parents did. Can I tell you that the resounding thing in this study of Taiwanese Christians, and by the way, they're, they're not a lot different than we are. All, all people are just about the same at the end of the day. We have different, we have same struggles, just manifested differently. We go through life, everybody gets old, right? Everybody gets old. Everybody has heartbreak, everybody has relationships, all the stuff. There's not a lot of difference between people just because you're in a different country. There may be culture, but at the end of the day, culture's not really that, that big of a deal. What is amazing in that study is that it affirms the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. But these parents who sought to live out the Shema and obey the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 parents, what they saw is that their kids, even as adolescents, began to have a rock-solid understanding and commitment to the same faith that their parents had. So parents, grandparents, Adults, you are to live courageously, convictionally, and consistently. Number one, because that's your calling as a disciple. And by the way, kids, teenagers, college students, you're to do the same if you know Christ. But parents, let me speak to you. If you aren't doing that, you didn't know there was going to be a parenting thing, did you? You didn't know there was going to be a parenting application. If you aren't living courageously, consistently, and convictionally in your home, your children are not going to see any value in what you say you believe. 
employees, employers, if you're not working and leading your team courageously, consistently, and convictionally in accordance with Scripture, those around you aren't going to know that you're a child of God. What's the difference between you and me? They'll say, you need to live courageously. Stand up for what is right. Live convictionally. If there's something that you know to be wrong, be convictional and oppose it. It may cost you a job. It cost Jamie Dallimore a job. He was a car salesman in Washington State. Boss said a lie to the customer, tell him everything's fine. Jamie knew it wasn't. Jamie said, I'm not going to do that. that. That is wrong and sinful to do that. If you don't do it, you don't have a job. Jamie didn't have a job because he was convictional about being true and trustworthy. And live consistently. If you say you value something, let your life show it. Somebody who says, oh baby, I love you. But you treat your significant other like a piece of garbage? Do you really love the person you're saying that to? Ladies, if your husband says to you, oh baby, I love you, but he treats you like a piece of garbage all the time, don't you think you're going to think to yourself, I don't think you love me. Yeah, you would. Men, same to you. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Sometimes it's not the man who's the transgressor. It's the woman. Let your talk match your walk. Your walk match your talk. Be a person of integrity. If you want to live past the vapor, if you want to live with eternity in mind, live courageously. Live convictionally. Live consistently. I don't have to think about what Joshua would say his life's purpose was. He told us, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. That's what he said. Are you living your life in such a way that that can be said of you? Or are you just seeing what happens? Today is a new day. God's mercies are new every morning. If you've been living a life of half-hearted devotion, if you've been living an inconsistent life, if you've been living a, a, a life that is characterized by cowardice, by inconsistency, by no convictions, today is the day that changes. Repent of it. Confess it to the Lord. Ask God to show you the areas in which you are to be more courageous, more convictional, and more consistent. And He'll do that. If you don't know Christ, you can't really be courageous. It's a fearful thing to say to God, well, it's a dumb thing first, but it's a dumb thing and then a fearful thing to say to the Lord, your ways are wrong. It's also a horrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You have every right to be full of fear. Because no one who is not covered by blood can boldly approach the throne of God. It is through the blood of Jesus that you were made right. The Bible says that if you don't know Christ, your sins separate you from God. But if you will confess Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you'll be saved. If you don't know Christ today, you need to come and you need to know Him. All you got to do is say, Lord, I want to know You. I confess my dependence upon You. I confess my sin. I repent of it and I trust You to save me. They'll say. As we enter this time of invitation, I'd like you to stand and I'm going to pray for us. And listen to me. If you would say that your life is characterized by cowardice, the invitation for you, or if it's characterized by a lack of consistency or a lack of conviction, will you come and will you kneel at this altar today and ask that God would cultivate those three characteristics within your heart and mind for His glory and your good. And if you don't know Christ, I'd love to talk with you. So as our praise team comes, uh, we enter this time of invitation. God, we love You and we thank You. And Father, I thank You that Joshua uh, 
lived a consistent life, a courageous life, a bold life, a convictional life. And Father, I pray, God, that you would make those things true in us, that you would make us a people of conviction, of courage, of strength, of consistency. God, I want to be consistent for you. I want to be consistent in my dealings and my thoughts and my speech and my attitude. God, I want to be consistent in everything because you are always consistent and you are always consistent. So God, make, make me that. And Father, I confess that I'm not always those things. Lord, I want to repent of that. I, I don't want to be characterized by inconsistency, a lack of conviction, a lack of courage. I have no reason to be characterized by those things if Christ is in me. So make me those things. And Lord, we pray for each one in here. God, we pray for the one who's been convicted or they're thinking to themselves, oh God, help me. Lord, would you give them grace and a calm assurance of your graciousness. Lord, for the one who doesn't know you, would you remind them that you are a forgiving God who forgives the iniquity that we bear and you make us new creations. So Father, we love you and we thank you and pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for choosing the podcast of Four Mile Creek Baptist Church. To learn how to have a relationship with Jesus, simply click the Jesus tab on our website at fourmilecreek.org. Until next week, may you continue to follow Jesus and make him known in the everyday stuff of life.